All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucksters? What's happening? Joe List is on the show. He's a comedian out of Boston, out of the Boston area. Um, I didn't know much about him. I'm, I was happy to talk to him. I didn't, when I watched his new special, I didn't realize, you know, who he was. I'd seen him around, but I thought he was some alt guy, some uh, lanky little alt comic, but uh, he's a... He's a joke slinger. He's a killer. Old school. Got his training in the old method. Talked about that. I was sort of like, wow, this this guy's got some uh he's got some weight. He's got some heft to his uh his joke delivery. So I talked to you Sunday and um let's try to keep it together here. But uh I um I monkey is uh monkey's gone. Long live monkey. Monkey is dead. Long live monkey. Great cat. Great friend. Very consistent companion. 16 years almost to the day. My cat monkey was with me. Through it all. Back and forth from New York a couple times, me and the monk, monkles. And uh, from all the way from a garbage can in Queens, back alley, to uh, to a house on a hill, Highland Park, and now to the uh, the big house here. The monkey was with me. It was time, though, man. And we had talked about it, me and Monkey. As many of you know, uh, I've been in grief for the past couple of months. And, you know, I've been worrying about monkey's health for probably close to a year. You know, they get old. I put his sister down a while back, LaFonda. That was rough. Terrible. It's terrible trying to figure out when, but it was very clear with LaFonda. She had lost her mind. She had lost a lot of weight. She was having trouble balancing. She was uh, trying to climb into the toilet, into the bathtub. And then she started howling. And then I took her in. And they rigged her up with a catheter. And I held her. And the doc sedated her. And then asked me, are you ready? And I was ready. And then that was that. Lynn was with me for that. I was holding the cat. Lynn was holding me. So outside of worrying about this cat constantly, constantly, for months and months, I would get up. Is he all right? Is this today? Is he sick? Where is he? What's going on? Is he going to eat his medicine? What are we doing? Does he have the flu? Does he have asthma? I mean, there's a whole portion of my brain that was committed on a daily basis, even when I was out of town, to worrying about my cat monkey, so connected to this cat. I projected a lot of misery on him, but he was okay. His quality of life was all right. But then it gets to a point where, what is it exactly? And we had a long discussion about it. You know, he knew I was sad. And I told him, I said, look, I'm going to be okay. You can go. If you need to go, you can go. This was like a week or so ago. And he was still jumping up on my bed and sleeping by my head. And, you know, I was crying on my bed. And, you know, he looked at me. He's like, you know, I get it, man. I get it. I know this has been hard. And, uh, you know, I've been through a lot with you. And this is certainly the hardest thing we've been through but I'm I'm here but I'm 
I'm, I'm almost done, buddy. I'm almost done. And I said, okay, man. All right, I get it. You're like 80. He's like, yeah. Yeah. And it's been good. And I'm like, well, you let me know when you want to, when you want to go, when it's time to let go. So Monday, I, in the morning, it's weird what you hang on to. Like, I'm like, I'm going to try one more time. I'm going to give him sub-Q fluids. I held him down. I gave him the fluids. He ate his medicine. And that was, that was the other thing that was making me happy. It's like, if he would eat his medicine, I would get relieved. But what is that quality of life? He sat on the couch for five minutes and he ate his medicine. It's going to be okay. It's not. After a certain point, they're just old and they're ready to go. And it's on you. They don't know when to die because you've made their life good. It's on you. So I got him in the box. I brought him in the afternoon. I texted Doc from the parking lot and he got, he got him in there right away. And it was so weird because Monkey was, is usually crying in the car. He was just looking at me. He was just peaceful, almost like baby-faced. Kind of like, okay, thank you. I'm sorry. But when they took him out of the car, the, the guy, the tech, he's like, Meow! and I'm like, oh, man. And I had Modesto. I had Doc, uh, you know, I had him do a panel, do a blood panel, man. Let's just check it out. And he does the blood panel. I wait about an hour and he's like, you know, it looks great. Everything looks great. The kidneys look great. I'm like, I gave him sub-Q fluids. He's like, oh, that's why. But then he said he lost another 0.3. He's down 1.3 pounds in five weeks. That's a lot of his body weight. It's not good. And I'm like, but his kidneys are all right. So like, what can we do? He's like, we can give him an appetite stimulant. I'm like, yeah, let's do that. Let's give him an appetite stimulant. That'd be great. But try that. And I was about to take him home. And I just sat there and I'm like, wait a minute. He can't breathe. He's whimpering. He's lost a pound in three. You know, it's like the medicine's not working for the asthma anymore. You know, the sub-Q fluids. Am I going to get him an inhaler and do sub-Q fluids three times a week? For what? So he can sit on the couch for five minutes and eat his medicine? So I texted back. I'm like, doc, I don't know, man. It don't feel right. And I wanted my vet to tell me. He helped me with LaFonda. He said, it's time. And my vet, because he's a great vet over at Gateway in Los Feliz, Modesto, Dr. Modesto, he texted me back, yes, I would honestly euthanize Monkey if it was my cat. I said, okay, let me know when to come in. But so I went in there. They brought me in. They walked me back. I put the mask on. And he was sleeping. He was out, but his eyes were open. He was sedated, breathing. Monkey, my cat, my old guy. And... um. There were two texts in there and the doctor, I said, how many people are going to be in here? And I'm fucking crying. And he said, just me and you. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. And I just put my hand on monkey's chest and, you know, in his stomach and on his head. And I said, go ahead, do it. And I just held him and he shot it in him. And then it just stopped. The breath stopped almost immediately. And I walked out. I cried a lot on the way home, but like I just the hardest thing is just knowing that you did the right thing. And of course it was the right thing to do. And of course it was the right time to do it. And I now just realizing just how worried I was about him all the time, all the time. And I'm so sad that he's gone, but God, what a great cat. What a great life. And, uh, he really fucking hung in there. So I'm relieved, but,
but sad because I, I can remember I, my whole life with that cat. I can remember all 16 years, you know, like he's been the constant, him and the other ones, LaFonda and original crew. And you got to realize, I don't know, many of you know this story, but it's, I don't need to tell the whole story, but it was because of those cats that I found my voice on radio. It was the adventures of those cats and my adventure with those cats when I trapped them in Astoria in 2004 when they were a couple months old, the night before the Republican convention, and I was doing daily morning radio, and I brought four feral kittens into my house, That's and I began talking about that on the air. That's where I developed my ability to be on these mics. My voice on the radio and on this podcast was built on the backs of the Fonda and Monkey, for sure. They were the inspiration. They were the muses. They were the beginning of freeing my voice on radio. Godspeed, Monkey. Monkey is dead. Long live Monkey. Thank you for all your support and fan art and everything else and for listening to me talk about monkey he's made his way into at least two of my specials and the fucking monkers oh yes oh yeah i should mention this on sunday august 9th i will have 21 years sober if i make it to sunday i think i'm gonna make it i i got a pretty strong feeling that i can tell you this now and probably i'll probably bring it up monday but august 9th 21 years sober if that inspires anybody, it fucking should. It's uh, it's an amazing thing that I don't even think about that as a solution anymore. Drugs or alcohol. And I'm off of uh, nicotine for almost a year. I think that's like on the 24th or something. So not bragging. Because God knows being wide awake at this particular juncture in history is not particularly terrific or a great gift, but it is uh, happening and I'm not hiding from it. So try to, if you need to stay sober, if you need to, if you have a problem or you think you have a problem, there's always help. You can find help. Uh, there's always a meeting somewhere online now you can go to a meeting any place in the world right from your house now okay enough of that um boston joe list comes from boston and he did his training in in a similar way that i did you know with some of the dudes that i knew that i came up with and it was kind of a great it was a great talk because I didn't know him, and you know, and, and you know, I started in Boston, really. And he's got a new comedy special. Joe does. It's called "I Hate Myself." Joe List, "I Hate Myself," premieres tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern on YouTube as part of Comedy Central's stand-up channel. Joe financed it himself, and then he taped it a week before everything shut down. He also has a weekly podcast that he hosts with Mark Normand called Tuesday Stories. Get that wherever you get podcasts. And uh, this is me and Joe List coming up.
How are you, man? Uh, I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm yeah. nervous. This makes me nervous. Why does it make you nervous? I mean, I guess I we don't really know each other. I don't know you. Yeah, we don't, I don't think we know each other at all. But, um, <laughs> I mean, I know you through the show. I'm a big fan of the show. And we chatted in Montreal last year a little bit, almost a year That's ago today, right. probably. That's right. And um, so you know me through this show. And maybe you've seen my stand-up or no? Yeah, quite a bit. Um, yeah, so I, I was on a Bringer show with you in two. Th- I was bringing in two thousand two, yeah. two thousand one. Stand up New York. Maybe it might have been two thousand. I was a kid, <laughs> and um, I, it must have been a rare night because I fucking hated that place and never went there. Yeah, it was definitely. You seemed unhappy, and I did the thing where I was like, "Hey, I'm opening for Mark Maron." I think I said that to you, which many uh-huh. people have said to me since. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it makes me think, boy, this guy must have hated me. Yeah. I, <laughs> I saw him. I, well, I mean, fortunately, uh, if if there was any sort of uh, hate, it's gone away. I don't recall it. You're probably uh, right in that moment. It was probably not great, but wow. Yeah. I. It's so weird when people say certain clubs like that one. I'm like, I, I hated going in there. I hated working at that place. I hated every... Uh, everyone who ran it, you know, over the years that it went on. But I know that a lot of people who came to New York went through there because they did so many of those bringer shows. Yeah, that was like, well, I started in uh, Boston. So like I would do, I found out about bringer shows. So I would drive down with my bringer, like my family. I'd drive down with like four people and drive to New York, do a set and then drive back. Really? Yeah, that was like my, and I thought, you know, in the time I thought, I was like, here we go, baby. We're going New to New York. New York City. Yeah. Right, mom? <laughs> who, who, who was, like, who was in the car with you? I drove down a couple times, well, um, with like my mother, father, and sister, and yeah. um, my uncle one time. That was a car. So there was four, and it was like a regular sedan. So there'd be like four of us in the car. And you'd, and you'd go and you'd see where you were on the lineup and you'd wait sometimes, like, was there ever one of those nights where you didn't go on until everyone was gone? It wasn't too bad like that. No, I mean, like, I feel like I don't remember that. I'd have like a decent spot because I actually brought my people, but I remember there was a lot of people that would sign up and they weren't able to get their people. And so that right. would be, they'd have to squabble and try to get people. And that, that happened to me once where I went all the way to New York and I was like, I'll just figure it out. And I was like um, barking for myself. Like I was trying to get people off the street to oh go to God. the club yeah, and say right. that they came to see me. Really? Did it work? One time I did get a couple of people to do it. They were like, okay. I, and it was because I did a tour at NBC. I did like the the NBC Studios tour. And we went to 8H or whatever. I looked at Conan's set or whatever. And you actually were just a tourist at the tour. Yeah, I was a tourist at NBC. Right. And it was like two British ladies. And I was like, if you like comedy, you could go to Stand Up New York tonight and tell them you're there to see me. And they're like, sure. And they did it. Well, you know, I think I'd seen you once before somewhere. And then I watched the whole special the other night. Oh, God. What's it called again, the special? It's called I Hate Myself. Good. So <laughs> I saw. So I, <laughs> but like, I watched it and I've been watching the specials lately because I've been uh, uh, kind of sad. And. Um, I, I enjoyed it because, like, I it's weird. You're sort of an unassuming guy. You seem like a, a wiry little guy, but you certainly you certainly uh, know how to fucking uh, you know hit those jokes with a bat. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I was worried about where that was going, and um, 
<laughs> Thanks for watching it. I mean, that makes me nervous. You're the first person to see it. I mean, literally outside really? of um, my, I guess, manager and agent, whoever like did the editing. Um, no, it was uh, it was great. It's what's interesting is how much of it, you know, sadly, uh, kind of plays as nostalgia already. Like flying, <laughs> flying on planes. You know, you're doing this whole bit about planes, which is, you know. That's something we talk about because we spend so much of our life on planes. But now, like six months into this fucking shit show, it's kind of like, oh, I remember. Yeah, you could just lay down on planes and <laughs> it was a nice thing to do and fly, you know. Yeah, it's strange. I've done a couple sets here in New York, like outdoor shows. And ah. you naturally set up jokes by being like, I was on the subway the other day. And you have to be like, I was on the subway six months ago. Yeah, and uh, boy, was this crazy. This- so they're having outdoor shows. Like, who's doing that? So there's a bunch of shows now. It's pretty wild, man. Like, uh, the other day, like, uh, my friend of mine had, like, three sets. So Stand Up New York, aforementioned Stand Up New York, has shows in Central Park, Battery Park, and Astoria Park. No microphone. They're just, like, essentially picnicking in no Central microphone. Park. No microphone. No. And you just stand there and kind of yell at people that are picnicking, basically. But they didn't come for the show? You're just sort of imposing? No, no. They did come for the oh, show. So they're okay. aware of the show. And Stand Up New York has little, like, uh, almost like uh, political signs. You know those little, you stick them in the grass? Yeah. But instead of saying Biden, it says Stand Up New York. And right. And they will kick people out if they're in that space. Like, there was a guy, the first show I did there, there was a guy, like, laying on a blanket napping. And they were like, yeah. excuse me, this is the stage for, right, <laughs> for right. our show. So he had to move... <laughs> Uh, but the people are actually coming. Like they have a big email list, and I guess people are aware of it, and they're you know a- entertainment starved. So there's actually there was like 50 people there, and I heard one show had like 90 people. No mic, no mic. So you got to just project out to the folks. It's a little That's, strange. No, I mean it seems nice, seems intimate, seems like a theater. Uh, but you know my but my thinking is like, are they still that fucking cheap? They can't find a little setup that you can have outdoors. So you guys can talk through a microphone? I don't know. Maybe there's um, noise ordinances or something. Oh. I don't know what's going on. But then there's a couple like uh, drive-in shows, too, at Bel Air Diner. You used to live in Astoria. I live here, yeah. and it's like a couple blocks from here, and they're all in their cars, and they flash their lights if they like a joke. It's Now, see that? I, I, I <laughs> did, did you do that one? I've done it a couple times. Now, I did the first one. I was on the first so New you York can't City hear, show. you can't hear laughter. Well, now they have some outdoor table set up like under a little tent sort of or under a whatever you call it, like a uh, canopy or something so you can hear those people so you can hear about 15 people and then you can see people smiling through their windshield huh now it's, that that doesn't sound satisfying to me i mean maybe you know you're sort of like a you know nuts and bolts joke guy so you can just kind of plow through your shit you know and just take the hit without you know, addressing it, but I would feel that it would be difficult to pace yourself and sort of an odd exercise. It's really strange. And, um, the nice thing the other night, so I've done a few now, uh, of just outdoor or whatever. And I've done a bunch of zoom shows, which are very strange also. And, um, now these for money, some of them are money. Like comedy seller did their first zoom show. And they pay because they're the comedy seller. Yeah. And Stand Up New York did pay a spot pay for the Central Park thing. Right. And and so did uh, the Bel Air Diner. Actually, uh, yeah, I guess all of them are. Some of the Zoom shows are not. But so the Zoom shows, like what? 
how is that? Do, do you tell people to take their mutes off so you can hear them laughing, or how does it work? It's really strange, but I'm oddly getting used to it. Well, that's what I was going to say just real quick was at the Bel Air this past weekend was the first time I've done like seven or eight sets outside or on Zoom. That was the first time that I was like, oh, that fucking joke ate it. That sucked. You know, like, uh, it was the first yeah. time having a feeling of like shit. And yeah. um, for the most part, though, you're like, there's no judgment. I can't judge this set or whatever. I'm right. just getting up and saying things, remembering them. But um, I mean, are you doing it because you're you're starved to be on stage, or or like a, you, you just a, a feeling of obligation? Is it the money? What? You know, that's a good question that I haven't really put that much thought into. I guess it was the outdoor one. I, some of it's just to see, like, ah, let's see what this is like. I guess it's another form of stand up, and um, yeah, I guess just to the same reasons. Yeah, that we go out and we did shows every night at one in the morning for nobody. The, yeah, you know, you're, if you if you're born with the compulsion and it's inside of you, you don't ask those questions. It's just you just do it. It's like, oh, there's a show, I'll do it. Where is it? Okay. Yeah, basically that's it. I mean, some <laughs> and some of them have paid, and I'm like, great, I'll make a few bucks. And um, the the one in Astoria is down the street from my house, and the one in Central Park, my my wife was on. She's a comic, and I was like, I'll go with you. And then they threw me up there. So, I oh yeah, you, you did a guesty in Central Park at the No Mike show. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, I'm not doing uh, indoor shows yet. I've canceled all those or postponed those for now because I'm trying to do the right thing. So where's this special going to be on? YouTube. That's the new. That's the new thing. It's a YouTube. And how does that work? So you shot it over at the uh, Comedy Cellars uh, uh, outlet? Yeah, the Village. I shot at the Village Underground. Yeah, the Village Underground. And who produced it? Was it a Comedy Central or a Comedy Cellar joint? What is it? No, it's just me. I just um, I just hired a guy to shoot it. The Comedy Cellar gave me the room and the door because they're extremely generous. And uh, I just hired my own film crew to edit it and make it. And... Um, that was it. And you had Bobby <laughs> Kelly bring you up and, and outro you? <laughs> no, Sean Donnelly was the host. And, oh, uh, Sean it was, Donnelly? Yeah, and it was just a regular old night at the, the cellar. I mean, that's what I wanted it to be was uh, initially was like, let's just do a night at the cellar because those are fun. Do you find, I find sometimes if you have fans there, comedy fans are, are tricky sometimes because they listen to all the podcasts and they begin to want inside jokes and they know you and they have heard stuff and they i, I don't know I, I like i like random audience members um but it was a tuesday night and like the day of they were like hey we got 40 reservations so uh we had to kind of push to fill it in and we did and it was great yeah i mean i don't know i i mean it's i think it's bold to yeah i mean you must be pretty used to that room I don't think either of those rooms are that particularly easy. They feel like challenging rooms to me. And especially if it's just their fucking people that come in there, it's hit or miss. So you were able to bring in half a house of people that know you? Yeah, there ended up being a bunch of people that knew me and everyone tweeted and, and did the thing and pushed it. So there was a lot of like comedy fans and I got enough fans in New York to do... We did two shows that the first show was like a... Yeah, like a, enough people, probably half the room was fan fans, and then maybe the second show was like a fifth of the room. Yeah. Um, but I think that's a good mixture of people that are really 
rooting for. But sometimes, you know, you get in your head. I'm like, if they're fans, they've probably seen me. They've heard it. They need something weird. They're comedy nerds. They're not going to laugh. And then I misjudge and I realize that they're actually fans because they love you and they want you to do well. And so they're hyped oh, up yeah. and they end up making a great audience. Yeah, that's the worst uh, thing that we do with our heads is that we just make these weird assumptions because we're so hard on ourselves. So, you know, we're tired of our own shit. And if we're doing old shit, there's, you know, you're pretty sure that like, well, if, without saying I'm tired of it, you just put it on them. And they're like, they got to hate this one. They they heard when I came up with this on the podcast. Right. And they're going to judge, you know, but they're they don't they, you know, no one's thinking about us as much as we are. And, you know, they're happy to be part of the event. Yeah, of course. And but I, I think if anyone hears a joke for a second time, they're like, ah, he's doing the thing. He's setting it up like it just happened. He's full of shit. Um, and that's yeah, probably like, my own projection, you know. Wait, like, like the comedy fan is not all of a sudden you're the revelation that they realize, like, they're not making this up. I mean, <laughs> yeah. But that's how you feel. I mean, you get in your head and you start to create those. Well, yeah, I mean, things. well, it's just sort of like, you know, it's like, how do I feel about hearing a joke a second time? I don't know. You know, and, and then a lot of times people, oddly, you know, if you think about people like Gaffigan, but this is how we judge ourselves. I mean, you know, they, all, all people want to hear him do is Hot Pockets, you know, for a decade. And right. and it was the bane of his existence. But But that's not how we think about it. I mean, I've thrown away so much material that nine people heard on a show that no one fucking watched that I worked a half a year on. Yeah, totally. I mean, I've I've had that with like, can I do this on Conan? Because I did it on Live at Gotham. And you're like, nobody, (laughs) nobody memorized your Live at Gotham set. Nobody. I think you said it at one point on, on this podcast. I think I remember it was you saying it about like, hey, could you guys... I know some of you have been around for years, but could you let the rest of these folks just catch up? Like you might have to hear another bit you heard right. from some YouTube video that you guys watched, but let everyone else catch up to this. Well, that's the thing, man. If you think about the time well, I'm older than you, when I think about like, you know, I've done like six, seven, you know, hour, hour and a half, you know, between five CDs and four or five specials or whatever. But nobody listened to some, you know, to the first, you know, eight you know, there's like eight. There's like eight hours worth of my material. Some of it pretty good that most people have never fucking heard before, and it's just there on the fucking garbage heap. Right. Yeah. People want to hear that stuff, and they want to hear it over and over again. Maybe. I mean, it's like, I have you ever thought about like, you know, I'm just going to cover my first album. I'm going to go out <laughs> and cover my 2002 release. Well, sometimes comics, like I know, like Gary Gullman's a friend of mine and one of my favorite comedians. He had that uh, great bit about abbreviations and yeah. uh, he he made it into this documentary he watched about docu- uh, abbreviations and it's like a nine minute bit. It's one of the best bits I've ever heard. Yeah. But I remember seeing him do like a 40 second version of that in 2003. Right. Where he just had the first couple right. things and it was whatever. And I was like, that's clever. And then, so obviously he circled back to a, a notebook or something. It was like, oh, this never became anything. And then with more skill made it a great thing. So I'm sure we have premises from 20 years ago that could be gold now. That's probably true. I used to go on Conan all the time with half-baked shit because I do, I'd always do panel and they'd get stuck for guests and they'd call me up on a day's notice and go, can you do it? 
And I'd be like, I got some stuff. And I and I, there's so much stuff that I did on Conan that later became actual jokes. It's embarrassing. Well, that's not embarrassing. That's terrific. I know, but the, but by the time you do the final joke, it's like you know, I I don't know. I, oh, I see what you mean. You know, like I, you know, it wasn't as funny as it could have been when I did it originally. But you, when you do panel, you can get away with a premise. You know, you can't right. when you're doing a stand up, but you can kind of throw the funny thing out there in conversation. Right. I remember Hedberg did that on his second album where he did an entire joke again just to add a tag. And he was like, I didn't want to deprive you guys of that line that I came up with after. <laughs> um, and it's, it's great. It works. And nobody, I'm sure, I don't think Twitter was around them, but I don't think anyone was mad at him. I don't think anybody really does get mad. And I think the people that get mad are just trolls or, or they're just, you know, mildly disappointed, obsessive fans. And, you know, that's their lot in life. It's yeah, like you know, those people that are like, I know everything you do. It's like, well, I'm sorry. I, I don't, I'm probably going to disappoint you eventually. Right. Yeah, they're unhappy people. I'm trying to remind myself that anyone on social media that's taking the time to write something negative is probably unhappy, and I should you know, pray for them or something. I don't know. I, I mean, I've been that guy, haven't you? That's writing mean stuff to people? Yeah. Um, maybe in response, if right. somebody was mean, first, I would justify my, my <laughs> anger. I just had it. A couple of weeks ago, yeah. I mean, yeah, I've been that guy. But <laughs> What'd you do? I've never initiated, I've never had, a, I've never watched a movie that I hated and tried to find the address of the director to let him know that I thought it sucked. <laughs> to leave it. You know what I mean? To leave it, to TP his house or something? <laughs> yeah. I've never, you know, written to Scorsese and been like, hey, this one wasn't quite as strong as Goodfellas. What was up with The Departed, you know? <laughs> so you're from Boston? Yeah, I started in Boston. Yeah, no, but from, you grew up in Boston. I grew up south of Boston, Whitman, Massachusetts. See, like, how is how do I not know that? I I fucking played every dumb bar in 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 the guy in New England, and I don't know where Whitman is. It's a small town. I mean, there's probably only been a couple, a handful of comedy shows there. It's next to Brockton, if you know Brockton. Oh, I'm sure, sure. You know, Nick's, Brockton Nick's comedy stop. Sure, yeah. I know Brockton. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> is, there, was there, yeah. is there still a Nick's in Brockton? No, I don't. I don't think so. No, I think that's gone. May, there might have been in January. I mean, certainly there's not right now, but there might have been in February. So you're coming. So you grew up in Whitman near Brockton. Like, it, how how big is that town? Just tiny, small, small town. It is. It does have the um, claim as the place that the chocolate chip cookie was invented. Uh huh. So we have that going, and, and people, it's also people actually stopping by for that. I mean, is that a draw or no? Just a no. I don't think anybody knows about it or cares is about there a, it. Is there a place that makes cookies there? To there honor? used to be Toll House, like the Toll House factory or something was there, but it burned down before I was before I moved there. A toll House isn't that a keyboard thing, or no? Is that a separate no. thing? Maybe. I got to be honest, I'm regretting the chocolate chip cookie thing now. I got nothing on Got no information. <laughs> I got just... no info. That's so, my one sentence I say, and usually people go, oh, wow, that's cool. So what, uh, so like, what kind of, what kind of town is it? Like, I'm trying to picture it. Is it like, that's not near Fall River, right? No, it's a little ways. I mean, it's relatively, it's near there. I think it's probably a half hour from right. Fall River, maybe. Uh, Whitman's like a real small town. It's, it, it's also its other claim to fame is it's the used car capital of Massachusetts. That'll give you a Springsteenian image of, of the town. A lot, of, like, a lot of used car dealerships kind of deal? Yeah. I think there's like 12 or 14 used car dealerships in a town that's, I think, like four and a half square miles. I feel like people are going to 
people from Whitman are going to really nail me on Twitter for not having my facts straight. But yeah, it's yeah. like a real small, you know, my parents always say they, they grew up in closer to the city and they just drove south until they could afford a house. That's basically how they ended up there. Oh, so what, what, what was your folks' business? My dad worked at a hospital. He's like in charge of purchasing, like he, you know, buys the gowns and whatnot. It's like an administrative job at a hospital. And my mother was sort of a secretary at an insurance company. So your dad's still in that uh, that racket? He is, yeah. So he's still working at the- So you've got to be busy uh, trying to get that PPE for the COVID people. I think he is, yeah. I think so. I you, don't know. You don't You don't talk to him anymore? I talk to him. We don't not talk. We didn't get in a fight and stop talking, mm-hmm. but he's a real quiet kind of Boston Irish Catholic kind of guy. Just oh. real, very stoic. Really There's so. not a lot of- uh, so I even, always joke. Even if you I, asked him direct informational questions, it would be tough to get an answer. Exactly. Yeah. It's uh, my mother always jokes. She goes, "When we go on a car ride, I bring a book." <laughs> he's a tough. He's a tough nut. Great guy, funny guy. Yeah. But uh, you're not. He's not. He's not a giver. I always joke. I did Letterman, and people say, "Wow, man, your dad. What did he? What did your dad say?" And I was like, "Nothing." And they're like, "I know." He's, but what did he say? And I'm like, "No, actually, nothing." <laughs> <laughs> he said zero things. <laughs> um, yeah. But they come to the shows and laugh. I mean, they're good people. They laugh. So you have like a nine brothers and sisters, or no, no, small. It's a just one older sister. But my mother has four siblings, and they all have kids. So it was always a big family. There was always twenty or thirty people around. Irish, huh? Irish, Scottish, yeah. Wow. But like, was it? Were they into the Irish thing? Not too much. My dad was Irish, but his family were, wasn't around as much. It was always my mother's family, the Campbells. Oh. Uh, so more more Scottish, but definitely uh, everyone gets together. We drink and we drink hard and heavy and uh, yeah. it was always together. Like the idea of a f- people talk about family reunions. I'm like, that's always been mind blowing to me. I'm like, we were together every Saturday and Sunday, every weekend of my life. No, no need for a reunion. They're just here. Is there like yeah, the, everyone- <laughs> there's six days between reunions. Yeah, exactly. We, everyone lived 10 miles apart. Everyone was together, and it's still very insular. It's still like that? Oh, definitely. I'm the only one that left and moved, and I come back, and it's a lot of like, how's New York? Yeah, there <laughs> like, he is. Kinda. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And they're um, looking at you like, like you're different somehow, and then they tell you you're not different, and then yeah. you've got to humble yourself or be humbled. It's a lot of that kind of feeling, and um, it's yeah, it's definitely shaped a lot of my. Uh, so, the, are they Boston Irish? Would you say your 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 dad's for people? Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, they have a definite New England vibe. It's a very New England, but not family. hard. They're not hard Boston Irish. No, no. There's an accent, like you would notice an accent, but they don't sound like they're not like yeah, yeah, you fucking <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's a little more um, subtle. They definitely would be. Someone would say, "What's up? Why are you guys talking like that?" But they're not. They're certainly not intimidating. They're not like Goodwill Hunting, right? You know, Boston. <laughs> not like a, that character, that Casey Affleck Dunkin' Donuts guy. Have you seen? Yeah, that bit is so fucking funny, dude. Cut your nails, kid. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's great. He really gets it, doesn't he? It's great. No, yeah, yeah we don't have that, but it's definitely um, not far that. <laughs> that vibe, yeah. It's a lot of a lot of drinking and yelling and joking. Right. So, when you started, when did you start knowing that you were going to do uh, that? You wanted to do the comedy. Always, I always feel like it feels like trite to be as long as I can remember, Mark. 
right. I wanted to be. But um, it really was like, I think as early as like third grade. And the story always sounds so like cheesy and like made up to me, or maybe I'm just self-conscious, but I watched, I think it was uh, Doing It Again or Jamming in New York, one of those George Carlins on HBO. Later George and, Carlin. Like, yeah, 1990, and so I was eight and like third grade, and I remember they played like the intro, they played clips from all of his thing, and I remember the rat shit, fat shit, dirty old twat, and it was just the idea of, what? Yeah. He's saying this crazy shit. I mean, that was my idea of comedy, was like saying insane shit, and I remember him talking about Dan Quayle and Margaret Thatcher, and I didn't know who any of the people were, but I was like, oh, I can tell this is great. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, yeah, that feeling of excitement. Like, are we allowed to do this? Yeah, it yeah, was yeah, insane. Like, how can a grown-up be talking like this? Yeah, it was cool and fun and insane, and then um, I was a kid, late 80s, early 90s, when it was really booming. So it was VH1 I would watch in the morning and A&E Evening of the Improv, and Comedy Central started to come around, and HBO. So... It was like... Um, Comedy everywhere. I was just obsessed with it. And then Bill Cosby, too. Like, we got together. Like, I remember my family, and this is still so cool to me, would go and, like, rent, like, a Louis Anderson or a Cosby, and then we would eat dinner, and, like, the VHS would sit on top of the TV. Like, we're going to fucking take that out. As soon as we're done eating, we're taking it out. And yeah. I remember thinking that was, like, amazing that this dude... Uh, and it was, like, pink circles like that neonish writing and yeah. i'm like oh man we're gonna pop it in and again like not knowing what the jokes are but it was like my family was loved it and it, i thought like oh that's a way to get attention from my family is the deeper meaning i guess is like this is the way to stand out but they they were comedy fans oh yeah they just they they were very like um they loved it they loved louis anderson boozler uh cosby and Carlin, a little, the younger ones, a little bit. I, th I don't know if my parents were as into Carlin, but uh, uh -huh. my uncle, I got an uncle who's like four years older than me, and he really showed me a lot of this stuff. Oh, yeah? It, it was like that classic thing of like, the as early as you understand that that could be a job, you're like, well, obviously I want that job. Yeah, I, I don't know that I understood if it could be a job. Well, I mean, I knew that they, yeah, clearly they were entertaining people. Like, I, I don't know if I ever thought in terms of the job part. I was just sort of like, that looks like uh, the best thing to do. Whatever that guy's doing, you know? Yeah, it seemed fun. And I, I, like, again, like through therapy and uh, that stuff, I see that it was like, okay, that's how you get attention. Because, you know, that growing up for me, everybody was very serious in my family. And work sucked and raising kids was a lot of work and everything was shitty. Except the weekends you'd drink and watch comedy and then it was fun and we'd go back to life being shitty again. So I think I thought... Oh, I could be that guy that makes it fun. Right. But that, but shitty how? Just like, you know, eh, not much passion in the work. Everybody's just sort of like you, you do it to get by so you can enjoy yourself on Saturday. Yeah, that kind of shitty. Like just commute and right. desk work and, right. you know, driving the kids to school didn't seem to be very pleasurable to anybody so that I was around. No one seemed to be doing anything they actually wanted to be doing. Right. <laughs> yeah, and that um, that was built into me of like, I, even as a really young kid being like, well, that sucks. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Why are they not happy with what they're doing? Yeah, why don't they do the? Why don't they do something yeah. about this? Yeah. Is how I felt when I was young, and then I'm like, 
as we're recording this, I'm sitting in front of a Bruce Springsteen poster. Then I got to an age where Bruce Springsteen basically made a career out of writing about that. About your family. About, yeah, about my family, <laughs> about the idea of people getting stuck in things that they don't want to do. And then that combination made me really like, the combination. we got to get out of this town, man. I was like one of those guys. You the know? combination of stand-up and Bruce. You're like, <laughs> this is we only live once. This is it. Yeah, exactly. With this, we got to get out. And that was the feeling, basically. So your childhood, it wasn't like abusive or weird. It was emotionally detached and, and slightly miserable. Yeah, I don't. I would say like uh, it was a good, good childhood. It's weird. I'm someone that deals with that thing where I have severe anxiety and panic disorder and alcoholism and depression and all these things. And I don't have for a long time, I'd beat myself up because I didn't have the the right thing to point to for it where I was like, I was never molested. My parents were together. We had enough money. Look now as an adult, I realize we didn't have very much money, but we had certainly enough. We weren't um, whatever starving. So I've always had that feeling of like, I'm a piece of shit for being anxious and, and struggling because I had great parents and a great upbringing. So I still don't know what's going on there. I, I think I could help. Please. <laughs> uh, well, here's the thing. I don't know the nuances or the you know, the particulars, but just from what you were saying about your old man, you, you know, if there's emotional detachment where, you know, you're not getting the input or the nurturing or the uh, sort of affirmation of uh, of your parent, um, that that's a sort of it's a it's a slightly it's a mild emotional abuse. Right. So what happens when you're younger and this is just the theory I locked into is that, you know, whatever shortcomings your parents have, however, they're fucking you up because they're not paying attention correctly. Um, you know, you're not going to blame them for which you just did. You didn't do it again. Like you're going to blame yourself. Right. So you think like I must be fucked up because they're my parents. They're perfect. I must be the fucked up one. So in in the gap between their whatever their detachment is or however they're emotionally not treating you correctly, you install a parent of your own in your own head that calls you an asshole your entire life. Right. Yes, that's what my therapist has been telling me for quite a while. Yeah, very similarly. And he'll, I do do that a lot where I'll go, yeah, but this. And he's like, that, you're doing it again. And I'm like, ah, shit. And, um, and also my mother's also a very, very anxious person, OCD. And so that's a lot of learned. So you got the detached also. guy and the panic guy. Yes, exactly. The detached exactly. father and they're like, oh, where are you going? Don't, wait, don't, I, oh my God, that. Yeah, a lot of, not so bad as that, but a lot of um, definite anxiety. And I think now, and I've talked to my family about this now with young kids in the family, there's not a lot of separation between um, talking really serious matters about car wrecks and disease and people breaking into the house and right. hearing that as a kid being like someone's going to break in our house or whatever so that's a lifelong fear and all those kind of things oh so she was just freaked out about everything and and uh that's not it's sort of antithetical to nurturing um <laughs> panic yeah ex right. exactly so a lot of um a <laughs> lot of panic anxiety and certainly um longing for um that attention love and feeling of of being protected that's what my therapist always says is you feel unprotected in the world which i i do yeah or have i wish i had the lo the longing for love more like i think my parents were so manipulative that that's how i sort of processed love 
So like now, like the idea of love, it's like, you're fucking with me. There's not, you, it's like with an audience, a girlfriend, doesn't matter. Yeah, you, I don't buy it. You don't really like me. Right, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's my cross to bear. I never believe the love. Yeah, I think I deal with that a little bit Yeah. too. My therapist has to go, well, your wife married you. She did commit to being with you for life. And you're like, yeah, but I think, I don't know. It's, you know, it's, you it's know like, she's, she's, it's, she's running a con of some kind. I mean, I, uh, yeah. Yeah, something's up. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah that's, that's a lot of the, um, yeah. the feeling, for sure. So did comedy, yeah, I, I often wondered that, like, you know, because I was compelled early, too, like, to you know, when I was... 11 or 12 and I didn't certainly didn't know how to pursue it as a job and you know even when I was in college it still didn't make sense to me you know, I remember approaching Paul Reiser uh, when I went to see a comedy show at this stand-up or at the comic strip when I think it was in college and I was like I want to do comedy how do you do it and he's like well you just got to do it and I'm like how the fuck does that mean you know I, <laughs> there was no but by the time you got in there there was actually there were a, there was a path there was a whole community of people trying to do it that you could go find fairly easily in Boston. Yeah, it was weird. So I feel like now the way people talk was that was sort of, I started in 2000 and it sounds like that was sort of like a, a dip spot. Cause obviously it's been sort of booming in the last few years. And then Dude, the the, 90s, you know, the, the dip, like the, you know, depending on what city you're in, the, the dip has been going on since the late eighties. You know, like, you, right. you know, like I, I was in Boston in '88, so that's when I started working doing stand-up. But the thing was, in Boston, it didn't matter that there was a dip because you were doing one-nighters. So there was three companies that booked you know million one-nighters all over, and there was Nick's in town. So it wasn't like it was a comedy boom, but you could go to Brockton and fucking right. <laughs> play a, a you know a hotel lobby. You know what I mean? So that was the way it was then. Yeah. So I yeah, I started in 2000 and I similarly didn't know uh where to go really. And then I was walking like I had just graduated high school and didn't had no plans to go to college or anything like that. And you that. had so never felt, done it before. Never done it and um well, I should say one time I opened for my friend's band cuz I knew I wanted to be a comedian and um it was a little different. I went up and uh this is like embarrassing but hilarious. I had a bag of Trick. That was a prop act, right? And I had a I had a raw hamburger bun, mm -hmm. and I asked a guy in the crowd, "What's your name?" And he said, "Whatever, Steve." And I said, "Nice to meet you." And I threw a raw <laughs> burger patty at him. Yeah, not at him, but like to his feet, you know. Wow. And then I had a I had a How green did that go over? Uh, <laughs> didn't hit, but I had some um, I had some high school buddies there that thought it was funny because it was ridiculous. <laughs> didn't didn't hit. Maybe I get. Did you because you would have had to hold the meat up and then throw it right? Or, yeah, yeah. But you probably I, didn't do that. You probably just panicked. It's and, funny. It's funny you said that because I I do remember now after the show people saying like we didn't know what that was. Yeah, right. Yeah, they were just like, what, what was what that? Happened? You you, um, you got a big plan in your head and then you, you <laughs> rush through it and it doesn't land and you know it's uh, it's just a weird moment, right? And yeah, it's it, it's just completely weird. And then I ripped off George Carlin had that old poem about his hair. Yeah, you know, and I wrote one about the word fuck. It was like fuck is a word often heard, often slurred. It was like this, you know, uh -huh. Carlin rip off. And um, 
It was bad. I mean, I probably did like two and a half minutes or something and then brought out my friend's band. Yeah, and probably too fast and just sort of like, yeah, but I mean, it's weird. That's what that's what we got to do. I, you know, there's no way, there's no way to be good at it at the beginning. It's right. just It's just terrifying and stupid. And, you know, you just want to get through that three minutes and like, uh, fuck, man, I did. It, I just if I really put my mind back there, it was just nothing but panic. And you'd spend the entire day or week just like, I got to do three minutes on Saturday, you know, and it's a nightmare. Yeah, it didn't make any sense, but you had to um, do it. It was strange. And I was a kid. I was like 18. I just graduated high school a few weeks ago. So they just set up the um, the commuter rail, which is like the train directly from Whitman to Boston. So yeah. I was like walking around Boston just aimlessly. And I happened to walk by over by Fenway there was like a Howard Johnson's and it said open mic Wednesday it was like a Chinese restaurant yeah and I called in like the yellow pages and they were like it was like an Asian guy I won't do the voice to spare everybody but he was like uh, you know come in Wednesday I could barely understand him and I was like great and I thought like all right I got a gig this is gonna be better this is like an adult this is a real comedy yeah and it was called Chops Lounge and that's where I actually started like October 2000 Chops and, uh, Lounge Chops Lounge by and Fenway it was like, yeah right next to Fenway but and, at the uh, Howard Johnson's next to Fenway. Yes. I can't and, I can't picture that. Is that an old Howard Johnson's? Well, now it's gone. Now it's like a really hip hipster like bar. That whole neighborhood, I don't know when the last time you were in the Fenway area, but it's completely changed in like the last three years. It's oh yeah? Yeah, there's like high rise buildings and like really cool burger joints and all kinds of bars and rooftops. It's like a it looks unrecognizable. And I've only been gone for uh, I guess I've been gone 13 years now. But. So this was the bar at Howard Johnson's near Fenway, and who was hosting that fucking nightmare? La- guy named Larry Lee Lewis. I don't who, know him. He probably came around after you, but uh, he did like old vaudevillian jokes and played the piano, like a boogie-woogie piano. He was a combination of, I guess, Jerry Lewis and uh, every the old vaudeville jokes, and he would do a lot of like, you know. Is he uh, an old guy? He was, uh, I mean, he was old to me. Now looking back, he was like 52 because he did a joke. He'd say, I'm a 52-year-old pothead. But to me, I was 18. He was like an antique. I thought he was an old man. Larry Lewis, huh? It sounds like he might have been around when I was there. Uh, I think he was new. I think he had just kind of started late late in life. But it was like a true open mic. Whoever showed up went on. And uh, there was some good comics there. Dan Mintz, you probably know. Yep. He was always there. And um, some other... People. That's uh, where he started. That's where Dan started. I believe so. He was around. I think he was a Harvard guy, so yeah. he was always there. And then Dan Levy's another LA guy that was always there. Yeah, I know Dan Levy. I yeah, the other Dan Levy, right? The, yes, <laughs> Eugene Levy's kid and Dan Levy, who's a TV writer. Um, right. Yeah, Dan. I like I like Dan. I like both of them, but I know Dan. So, sure. So he would be there, and then there was a lot of like just crazy people, like actual crazy people that would go up, and I was like a kid with jokes who spent my day trying to write jokes, and then there was some old psychos, and then there was some Boston veterans would show up. Uh, Teddy Bergeron would show up. Teddy, Teddy, hello, Teddy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, he had a boombox. He would record his set with like a boombox with a tape deck on that, it. And, that's uh, my son. He'll drop it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Teddy had some of the best fucking jokes. Oh yeah, I mean, like what? What a sad old fucker! But I'll tell you, man, did you listen to that live one I did with him? Like, it was kind of astounding because you know Teddy's story, and I, I'm sure you've heard some version of it, is is just horrifying. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, it's just it's astounding that he's alive. And he's a very sort of like a sad it's a sad story. But what was really interesting is I found him. I tracked him down to do a live WTF and he wasn't easy to find. He doesn't like have a phone. I had to call somebody that knew him or a relative. I don't remember how I got him. Right. And I hadn't seen him forever. And he's in the dressing room for WTF, you know, and uh, he's in sweats and he's like, I'm, I, you know, I'm doing I'm working on a new thing about the uh, about Mother Teresa and the Pope. And uh, you know, maybe I'll try that. And I'm like, I, I don't know. Man. I, you're I'm already sucked into this nightmare codependent Teddy world in, in seconds. And I hadn't seen him in 20 years. And we get out there on stage, though, dude. And, you know, people don't know him anymore, really. You know? Right. And a lot of my audience wouldn't know him at all. And he's trying his new stuff. And I see him, you know, sweating it out. And I know there's no way he could have tested it or anything. And then he's got all those. I knew he had all those great jokes about, you know, his father, you know. So I go like, so when you grew up, your father, was what was he like? He said, my father. And he just, he like, <laughs> he just went into those bits, dude. And they killed. And it was like, it was like almost moving, you know, like these bits that have been around for decades. And they, and they were so well honed and so well written and so personal and perfect. And they just, he just started doing them. And they just were like, it was like no one had ever heard them before. It was a beautiful moment. Yeah, no, he's he's amazing. I've tried hard to find old footage of him. I think there's a set of him on the old Letterman show yeah. that looks real weird. It's not great, uh, yeah. whatever, quality. But right. Yeah, when he would get it together and do, the, I'm sure, the same bits that he did in 1982 that I saw in 2001. Like, there's no Santa but, Claus and she's on a wire? Exactly. Yeah, that bit was, like, magical. I mean, it was great. Now, he had one of my favorite jokes ever was the, uh, you know, hockey players are tough. You know that joke? He's uh-uh. Hockey players are tough. They get, you know, hit in the face of the puck. They'll get 15 stitches, come out and play the third period. Baseball players, those guys are tough. He goes, you always watch the game and they go, Here's uh, Ozzy Taylor steps to the plate. He uh, missed the first half of the season. He was frightened by a small child last Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> so they would come. Who were some of the other veterans that would drop by? That was like Tony V, maybe occasionally, but most of those guys didn't touch that place because it was like this was like low level open mic, open mic. But then I started doing um, Dick Doherty's Comedy Vault on Sunday nights. Then you'd see Tony V and um, all those guys. Kevin Knox was a big part of the, the scene then. And then he ran the Monday at the Comedy Connection, and that was like the big... To me, there was a time in my career where Monday night, if you could get to the Comedy Connection, which was their like, new talent night, that was like the Tonight Show at that point in my career, and Kevin Knox hosted it. Oh, so Knoxy, so you were there before he died and before Laletta got sick. Like, those guys started with me you know or like they were kind of around my generation i remember you know when noxy started and those guys because i was in boston like i guess i was there in 88 and i was you know i moved to new york in 89 but i had to go up there every weekend to work so i was i was in boston 89 through 91 92 you know working all those one-nighters and nicks and everything else so all those guys were around that generation you know yeah it was great to be around those guys because like I didn't know I didn't know any of those guys and like I was one of the people that thought that the comedians were, you know, Bill Cosby and George Carlin and Rosie O'Donnell. That's a good point you know? about Boston where you get this whole working class bunch that, you know, you you wouldn't know. 
and he still wouldn't know him. Like I started with Joe Yannetti. Like I did open yeah. mics when I was in college with Yannetti and uh, who else? Uh, Kevin uh, or Brian Kiley. And yeah, like, I mean, the guys who were doing open mics, Fred, do you remember Simply Fred? Was he around when you were, he was probably, no, he just went by the name Fred. It was like, yeah, um, there were some other ones that I don't know what happened to him. Yeah. I was a big comedy connection guy and doing all those one liners you talked about. That was VFWs and, and firehouses and KFCs and or KFC, I should say. That was my comedy and i still i'm still nostalgic nostalgic about those uh gigs those are some of my best sets i've ever had were in like firehouses and vfws well it's interesting that you you know when you pay your dues like that you know you really you really are coming in cold like there's no i mean it's like guerrilla comedy like you know you know they're only having comedy night there once a week or once a month or whatever the fuck it is it's not a comedy club and if you're opening, it's like you just walk up to nothing and you kind of yeah. make something and, of it. And all the headliner guys would grab you and be like, don't do anything about the room <laughs> because you couldn't do any material. You, you, I couldn't be like, look at this chandelier because they're like, I'm taking that first 20 minutes. Yeah, because they're going to be all trash. Yeah, they're doing 45 and they want to get out as easy as possible. <sighs> yeah, exactly. So it was definitely going up cold and you had to have jokes and you had to have them fast because they were just you know red-faced firemen yeah. being like who's this fucking queer yeah exactly. <laughs> you had to really uh fight for it and um but it was it was great i mean i loved it i mean to me i was like i mean i'm in showbiz that's all i ever wanted was to be a comic it was it's a hell of great. a way to pay your dues to do those kind of rooms i mean like because i that's how i started you know on those two-man shows and you know you you really get tough I mean, it's like by the time you get to a comedy club, to do fuck, you're like, oh, my God, this is easy. This is great. Yeah. And a lot of those shows, they would go up and there'd be a picture of like a nine year old girl. And they'd be like, this is for Susan, who got hit by a van and she passed away. And then like her friends would come up and they would do that, like literally do that stuff. And then they would be like, here's comedy. It's like a cliche, but that would happen all the time. It was it was I didn't do so many of those as I did like Pancho Villas and Lemonster. You know, where you drive out to a restaurant in Lemonster and, and it was and that was one of the good ones or the Taunton Regency Hotel. You know, they'd had right. a full weekend gig, you know, in the conference room. And those were good ones. You know, it's crazy. Yeah. Some of them were fun. But um, yeah, there was a lot of crazy gigs and hell gigs that uh, I now I look back and I'm like, oh, that was really fun. It's a yeah, it's a very specific way to pay your dues. I look back and I literally cannot understand how I managed it. I was a neurotic, angry, uncomfortable Jewish guy driving around the New England countryside performing <laughs> for fucking Irish townies. You know, I remember when Nixon Saugus opened, you know, it, oh, my God. It was, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't have nostalgia for that. I, I, I have, I think, PTSD. That's my experience. Um, that's funny. Nick, Nixon Saugus at the Kowloon. Yeah. That, um, I would always joke, that's the, one of the few rooms that has a detailed police officer in the showroom. <laughs> this is the uniform cop with a handgun that he's assigned to be in the room, which yeah. is always comforting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nix was kind of rough, dude. The original Nix was still very much in, alive and intact and dug in when I started there and it was really something to see, you know, you could kind of feel the whole, you know, dark history of Boston in that place. Yeah. It's a tough, uh, those are tough rooms, but it, 
Uh, it was fun. I mean, to me, it was like I saw a lot of... I learned a lot of things to do and not to do. A lot of ways not to pursue a career. And you start to slowly see like, oh, there's a lot of anger and bitterness. In the middle of that, while I was up there, they made the movie When Stand Up Stood Out, which I'm sure... Did you see that movie? Was that the one with uh, a lot of Fran Salamita in it? Yes. Yeah, he made it. Yeah. And they did like a documentary about all these guys and how they all had fun and it was great, but they did too much booze and drugs and they ended up fucking up their careers. And then I watched it while I was doing the same thing and didn't even heed the warning. I was like, that movie's great. Woo! So you, <laughs> I just kept oh, so you were, uh, wait, you're sober? I'm sober now, yeah. So you were a boozy fucking kid? Yeah, I was a big booze kid. Yeah, for through through my 20s, yeah. Really? Yeah, I really got after it. It was bad. And and then you you so you had a you cop to being an alcoholic. You did did you are you do you do the thing? I do. Yes. Oh, I okay. Do. So when yeah. oh shit. So yeah. what had to happen for that to go? So like early on when you're driving when you're doing the gigs in Boston, you're just getting fucked up. Yeah, so like I mean a lot of the driving gigs I went early early on my first like year or two, I would be like I don't drink before a show. I thought I'd have this I wanted to be like this disciplined, you know. And then after a while, you're like, well, I'll have a beer during the show. I was underage for a lot of that, too. I started when I was 18. Yeah. So it'd be more like get fucked up after. And I still had like high school friends that were all the age where you get crazy drunk and stuff. And then eventually you drink, I drink during the show. And then it became a thing of like, let me see how drunk I can get during the show. <laughs> it doesn't take too long to get, to get there. And then... Um, yeah, I mean, then I started doing the road, and then the road, of course, that was like, this is like heavenly, because I'm in a hotel or a condo across the street. Yeah, you don't, you don't, you don't have free. to drive, and you drink for free, and you can just crawl back to your hotel. Or your yeah, and then, and then it became the thing. And I also had that um, romanticism of it, of like, that's what you do. I'm like an artist, man. You fucking, you get fucked up. Like, you're a dr I'm a drunk Yeah, you did that comic. thing, huh? Yeah. yeah, I fancy myself like an Irish. I'm like, I'm like, you know... Sure, Dylan fucking, Thomas. Exactly, yeah. So <laughs> I thought I was one of those guys, and except I wasn't writing any jokes and yeah, wasn't yeah, going right. anywhere. Right. So what? What that? What did your bottom look like? Um, there was a feel like I had things that should have been a bottom. Like I mean, I've told this story in a lot of podcasts, but one night in New York, I, I blacked out. I was a blackout guy, and I ended up shitting in a girl's bedroom like on her floor and urinating also oh that's great like in the yeah. middle of the night yeah uh like she was actually like in the morning which is strange um, So you, you thought you were in a bathroom probably i thought i was in the bathroom i i think i mean i have to presume because that wasn't my sense of humor right so um no i remember I when I, I was drinking i i once peed on the floor in the bedroom and i and i, I was pretty sure i was in the bathroom but i wasn't yeah it was that kind of deal and um the women it was two girls that were living there they had already left for work which i didn't realize because when i woke up and realized what i had done i texted them and i was like oh my god i'm so sorry and they were like no problem you were fine it was funny and i was like man these fucking girls party <laughs> and then i was like jesus <laughs> and then um i happened to be going to seattle the next day i mean it's a crazy story i was going to seattle the next day for the seattle comedy festival which is a month long yeah and i ended up missing my flight because i was so fucked up and I flew across the country with like shit on my pant leg and the whole thing. And um, when I landed and turned my phone back on, I had a text being like, we had no idea what you were talking about. This is crazy. You're a piece of shit. And then I was like, oh, that's more like it. Yeah. That seems like a more uh, oh, a so better you, response. You didn't even clean it up? 
I cleaned up what I could, but I was I, I had to run. So like the big the main pieces I got, but there was still like a urine and some traces of it. Sure, sure. And and uh, um, that was the end of that. that. No, that that's what's crazy. That still didn't end it. I remember landing in Seattle, and I was like, I, I got to take a break from drinking. And I was like, well, I'm not going to stop drinking, so I might as well drink tonight. And I kind of kept going. So it was kind of one of those bottoms you just kind of, I'll just hang out down here for a while. Yeah, sure. And then and then uh, I took a couple swings at it. When I first moved to New York, I had a, some days, 20 days, and then... Um, you going to meetings, though? Um, that, yeah, I did a couple times. So you moved to New York and, but you were going at it in Boston. When did you move to New York? How far in, like, when did that start? I moved in April of 2007. So I was about seven years into comedy when I moved to New York. To Astoria? Yeah. I just kept going and getting, you know, and I would drive back all the time because I showed up to New York. I had opened, I was opening for DePaulo on the road and I was, I had opened for Dane Cook in these big spaces and. I knew I was friends with Colin Quinn and I knew Dave Attell. And so when I showed up, I thought people were going to be really excited that this guy who knows Nick DiPaolo and Colin Quinn just came to town. You know, how do you know Colin? I knew Colin just through a gig. I opened for DiPaolo and the two of them had a gig and uh, I met him through that. And then somehow I, I knew he was similar to me in that, um, fashion so he's been very helpful to me in my uh, sobriety. Oh, sobriety oh yeah, yeah yeah it's interesting because i i did the um i like when i i watch guys especially guys i don't really know from new york because new york is so like you know incestuous and insulated comedically that you know like any generation i can kind of see some of the influences so it's always for me it's always fun to play like who who, who got into this guy's head Right. And 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 I definitely identified Colin in in you. Oh, well, that makes me feel good. I mean, hopefully not to the point that I no, sound no, like no. him, but um, no, no, no. There's just there's like a slight on a couple of jokes. There's a slight turn that I'm like, what is that? I'm like, oh, that's sort of a colony thing, you know? And which is it, no, it's not bad. No, there's definitely uh, moments. I mean, I don't know if you still have that or maybe not, but I'll write a joke and be like, you know, you write it in your voice and you do it, and I'm like. There's a moment where I'm like, how did I come to that? And I'm like, ah, that's that's this Colin joke. Right. Or that's this DePaulo bit. Sure, sure. Or this sure. is that Carlin thing. One um, of the first guy one of the first gigs I ever did, I opened for Nick DePaulo. And he's really he's like my age. He was just yeah. added a little like it was a Captain Nick's in a Gunkwit, Maine. <laughs> um Well, Nick, I started open for Nick in 06. This is a funny story, my I couldn't, at the Comedy Connection, I was their guy. I would just open for all the people that were coming through. And I was supposed to open for Nick. And um, I couldn't do the Thursday because I had some private gig. And so this other guy filled in that night. And evidently, that guy was in the green room with Nick. And he said, uh, hey, uh, how long have you been doing comedy? And Nick said, shut up. We're not girls. We don't have to force a conversation. He's like, you can just sit there. <laughs> and so that guy called me. And he's like, hey, man, this week, don't try to talk to this guy. He's crazy. Yeah. So I said, okay. And I just sat like in silence for like three nights, you know, six shows, never said a word. And at the end, DePaulo goes, I like you. You keep to yourself and you got some jokes. You want to go on the road? And I said, sure. <laughs> and so for like a year, I just would travel all over with Nick just silently. And eventually we started, you know, having arguments and fights and, you know, in love. But yeah. Um, but um, yeah, that, that was like extremely helpful that the guy was like, don't, <laughs> don't be yourself with him. Yeah. 
don't don't talk to the monster. Yeah, but um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, he was like a big influence uh, comedically. Um, yeah, as well. Sure. But, well, that like I, I can definitely see that. So then you like so you you got sober for good. It stuck when? How many times? When? Uh, 2012. So what happened that time was just the same thing, lingering around, knowing like I I knew very early in my drinking that I was like this is this I don't think I'm supposed to be. This isn't how people other people are drinking, you know? Yeah. And I always kept friends that were um, older and married, so I always had that thing. I'm not as bad as that guy. Right. I was one of those guys. And then, um, yeah, I was, I tried a couple times. And so I knew about the thing and everything. And um, I started dating my now wife. And she's, so, she's 11 years sober today, as a matter of fact. Oh. She had a couple years and she was willing to date me. And so I kind of got closer to it that way, and, uh, but kept drinking the way I was. And it wasn't until like Christmas 2012 and my brother in law, his father had just passed and uh like days earlier and i was making jokes about it to him and i just remember him being like what are you what are you doing dude and having that that oh, shame of you like, were, you uh, were kind of drunk i was drunk and kind of ah, yeah because you something you know you think you're being funny or whatever yeah, yeah yeah sure and i remember him being like what are you doing And i was like ah, i don't know man i don't know and worse than like shitting in a girl's shoe and fucking hating myself and getting herpes was just somebody I love being like, dude, what, are you, what is this? And just being like, fuck, yeah, I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> that was what so did I, it, the insensitivity. Yeah, that kind of moment of like, I mean, and a lot of other things. My career, I, fuck, I really hated myself. I was still featuring and I had never, I couldn't get on any TV or anything and I had the same material and just all that kind of shit, self-hatred. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so December twenty eighth, twenty twelve was my last drink. Wow, that's great, man. Yes, it's nice, and like all the—I I mean, every bit of success I've had in relationships and comedy has come since then. But it's nice that you were able to um, be with a sober person who you were dating and still be a fuck up, and uh, she kind of stuck with you that long. So at least you didn't just jump in right at the beginning. Like she, she let you kind of flop around for a while. Yeah, it was about a year and a half, and she didn't give me like an ultimatum or anything, but she, I mean, she knew, I mean, we had drank together when she was still out, and um, she kind of knew, and I was I was pretty good about keeping it away from her, and... You think. Uh, yeah, yeah, so, um, and then uh, she was like, great, and she didn't, you know, I was like, I'm sober, I was like doing that, and she was like, okay, like she wasn't like, yeah. she didn't get too excited about it, but... Um, you know, I got in there and, and fucking got it done. It was great. So now you got like eight years and change or something? Uh, Seven and change. It'll be eight in December. And that's great, man. That's so fucking good. It's better, right? Yeah, so I love that's it. Why I mean, see, that's why, like, you know, for some reason, like, because, like, you know, I watched you and, like, I don't, I know the difference between, you know, a guy that came up the right way in stand-up comedy clubs doing the real deal and, like, alt people. And, you know, you kind of look a little alty at first, and then I'm listening to you. I'm like, this guy's got teeth, man. What the fuck is he about? Like, and, and this is now it's, you know, it all comes to, uh, it, it all comes to, uh, into it, it comes uh, into clarity here, you know. Oh, you came you. up well, uh, You came up with the old timers with the old monsters, and there you go. You were a little monster yourself, and look at you. Yeah, I mean, well, that's <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. But that's that to that to me was um, comedy in Boston. When I started, was 
killing. I mean, that to me, that was what people in Boston valued more than any. I mean, sometimes to a fault, but that that was the most valued thing for the first six or seven years I was doing comedy was crushing. Yeah. And so I was like, Jesus, I better be one of those guys. And now I've backed off of that a little bit of like, all right, there can be some space to breathe and, you know. And then you tour with Louie too. You tour with Nick and Louie, huh? It's so funny because Nick, Nick and Louie used to live with each other in this fucking apartment Barry Katz owned, you know. Yeah. Oh, my God. Back in the day. What a fucking disaster those days were. <laughs> so you uh, but you toured with him and you played the big rooms, huh? Yeah, I got to do that. So yeah, I met Louie. I was at the cellar and he was sitting on the steps, fortunately, not like downstairs. So I couldn't see him because if I had seen that he was there, I would have been like, oh, gee, and tried to. Right. So I was just kind of fucking around and he liked what I was doing. And then, um, yeah, we ended up chatting and having the Boston thing and all that stuff. So you got to play Madison Square Garden? Yeah, I did the garden a couple times and um, did all the, the whole Europe thing and the private jet and stuff. It was pretty amazing. And back then he had the great audience. Yeah, it was huge. I mean, it was like the shows were all killer and we were flying private and it was like a dream. Wow. It was insane. I mean, I got a funny garden story, though. It was one show that just wasn't great or they weren't loving me and I'm just struggling. I'm doing like 20 minutes. It's like 15,000 people. A lot of them are trying to find their seats. And, you know, you ever, you know, when you do a joke, sometimes some one guy will laugh and you're like, hey, this fucking guy gets it. What? Right. I almost did that at Madison Square Garden. <laughs> like in one guy, one guy in like 214 just, he goes, ah, ha, ha. And I, there was a brief moment where I was like, this fucking, I was like, I can't do that in front of 15,000 people. <laughs> this guy gets it over here. <laughs> but um, yeah, did the whole, the whole thing. I mean, it was like, it was, it was wild. It was quite a experience. So what do you do? Like, uh, in, so in, in general, where were you at? You know, before the um, the the lockdown, where you you're just out there headlining, and you and Mark Norman do a podcast. Yeah, so I do uh, the podcast with Mark Norman Tuesdays with Stories, which I've been doing for years, and um, we do that, and that does real well. I mean, relatively well to me. And um, I started another podcast, which is I don't know if this is good or bad, but it's very much based on this one. I wanted to have the conversations you were having, but it's called Mindful Metal Jacket, and it's about you know, anxiety, therapy, all that kind of stuff. And, uh -huh. and uh, started doing that, and that's been really fun and uh, meaningful to people that have emailed me and stuff, which is nice. And then I'm just like kind of a road dog. I'm doing about 40 weeks, all the, you know, Funny Bones and Madison and all those yeah. Dr. Grins and Side Splitters and all those gigs. Any of that stuff back on the docket or no? Not yet. They all just keep getting moved right now. Like Is I was that a baby? To... Do you have a baby? No, sorry. My wife just came in and our door is very squeaky. Oh, oh, oh okay. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was hoping it didn't pick up. Everything but, got uh, moved? Everything just keeps getting pushed. And um, so to next year, so now my 2021 looks is starting to look, you know, decent. But I'm just trying not to do the indoor shit right now. I don't want to yeah, be sick. part of that. Yeah. So, um, and do you ever tour with your wife? Yeah, she's. I bring her on the road when I can and... Um, yeah, when I can. It's and nice. That's, it's working out. You guys are doing good. Yeah, I love it. I mean, it's great because it's, you know, you get to uh, feel like home on the road and yeah. I get to get laid on the road. It's nice. That's great. And clearly this was like the wrong time to have this conversation. What else are you going to say? <laughs> <laughs> no, even if she was not here, I would say it's great. And um, yeah, I well, love wish it. Wish her a, a happy uh, anniversary for me. Oh, I will. I will do that. On her sobriety. And to you, too, congratulations. And the special was very funny. I got some solid laughs.
And oh, uh, what, what are you doing for your anxiety? Do you, do, you, do you have tools? What do you do? Well, so now I do, I mean, uh, the thing you mentioned helps yeah. a lot. And I got really into meditation. Um, really? Sam, I've, I've been meditating for a, a while, but I just got really into the Sam Harris has an app, um, Waking Up. Do you know that guy, Sam yeah, Harris? Yeah, I heard of him, yeah. He's great. He has an app called Waking Up, and there's like I highly recommend it. There's a ton of shit on there, like long interviews with uh, meditation people. But he has an introduction course. He does a lot of guided meditation, huh. loving kindness meditations, half hour meditations, and I've gotten really, really into that. And um, that helps a lot. And um, yeah, just a lot of reaching out and talking to friends and like-minded people's really helped and and therapy i got a therapist that i love and it's a, it's a full-time job i mean it's a it's a constant combination of all those things to be even sane yeah exactly yeah yeah I, I i might do i i've been dancing around the meditation idea for a while and i just recently since my girlfriend died i got into that yeah i'm not really a god person but i from being sober i would you know i would pray uh, because I was told to do it. And right. I find that, you know, in times of crisis, I'll do it and it makes me feel better. Yeah. I, that stuff is really, really helpful. And it's funny because all of these things, but especially that stuff to me is easy to yeah. forget. And then you hear it again and you're like, fucking right. It's right here. Like Colin Quinn is a guy I talk to a lot and he'll just say things that he said to me a million times. And I'm like, Jesus, fuck, how did I yeah, well, that's How why I forget that. Well, that's why we, you know, we have to stay engaged with the fucking program, right? Because like all of a sudden you feel like shit, and they ask you, you know, whoever your your guys are, they ask you, are you doing this? You're like, no. Are you doing this? I'm not. Did you go to a thing? I didn't. So, what do you think's gonna happen? Thanks. Oh yeah, right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I had I heard a, someone say something great the other day. Um, he said. Uh, you know, he talks to people and they'll say, how are you doing? They say, good. And he goes, well, how are the people around you doing? <laughs> this is a great thing to, a great tool to remember of like, yeah. I'm fine. And yeah, then you're yeah, like, yeah. everyone behind you is just fucking right, yeah. bleeding and yeah. crying. Yeah. Who's the crying lady? Oh, her? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Shit, I forgot about her. Good point. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right. Well, keep at it, man. It was great talking to you. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Mark. I appreciate it. Good talk. I like that guy. Joe's special, I Hate Myself, will be available starting tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern on YouTube. I'm going to play a little guitar for the original crew, Monkey and LaFonda, Boomer, the unsung heroes, Meanie, Hissy, Moxie, Butch, Deaf Black Cat, Scaredy Cat, my original crew, Monkey and LaFonda. So now I will dump all of my love and attention into Buster Kitten, who is going to be overwhelmed by it, but I think ready for it, because Buster Kitten was certainly neglected because of my old senior cats, and now it is Buster Kitten's time. I hope he stays healthy for a while. I'm going to bring him in to be checked. Because he had problems. He almost died from kidney failure when he was like two. But now it's Buster's time. The time of Buster Kitten begins.
Shout out to the original crew. Boomer. Monkey. LaFonda. Live.